We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. If the human sacrifice is impure, the result may still be attained, but the demon will forever reside in the soul of the victim. She must forever feed on flesh to sustain the demon. Okay. She's eating boys. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan. Austin Wilkin and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! Hey, I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. And I'm Trevor. And, and we're, we're the Blue Crew! Welcome to episode 69. We are celebrating the 10th anniversary of one of our favorite movies released September 2009, the insanely wonderful dark horror comedy Jennifer's Body, starring Megan Fox, Amanda Seyfried, Johnny Simmons, and Adam Brody. It grossed $6.8 million opening weekend. Some say a film way ahead of its time that has since found a whole new rabid fan base of people just discovering the film due to its incredibly relevant themes and completely original and bold attitude. We are so stoked to be joined this week by one of the stars of the film, Jennifer Check herself, Megan Fox. Hear her in a fascinating talk about her connection to the paranormal, her incredibly deep interest and knowledge of ancient mysteries and archaeology, to how she became involved in the Jennifer's Body Project, the secrets behind her performance. We'll break down certain scenes, her thoughts looking back at the film today, and more. It is super enlightening. She is so charming and intelligent. We had so much fun and know you will too. Then we go through the Boo Crew archives and dig up interviews with the film's Academy Award winning writer and a true legend, Diablo Cody. Listen to her reflect on the movie, how she developed the idea, and why it is being hailed as a cult classic today. Finally, we catch up with the lead singer of Low Shoulder himself, Nikolai, aka Adam Brody, who came to visit us with Samara Weaving while they were in for the release of one of the best horror films so far this year. Ready or not, he talks about what it was like working with a powerhouse team on Jennifer's Body and its recent rediscovery. The Boo Crew's 10th anniversary celebration of Jennifer's Body starts now. Through the trees! Come on, everybody. (laughs) No. This is Megan Fox, and when I'm not busy devouring souls, I'm listening to the Boo Crew podcast. Totally evil. They're basically like agents of Satan with really awesome haircuts. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. You're killing people. No, I'm killing boys. I thought you only murdered boys. I go both ways. I will finish you if I have to. Okay. You can barely finish gym class. 
Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is a world-renowned actor, producer, creator, entrepreneur, and role model. She has starred in countless projects, including the TV series Ocean Ave, Hope and Faith, and The New Girl, defined the billion-dollar Transformer film franchise, voiced characters in video games, created her own lingerie lines with Fredericks of Hollywood and Forever 21. Last year, she created, executive produced, and hosted Travel Channel's exceptional show, Legends of the Lost, giving us explorative new adventures, uncovering the Earth's greatest mysteries. The brave choices in her work and her outstanding message of confidence throughout all that she brings to life has done something that precious few have ever achieved. She has transcended the screen and print and has truly become iconic. In 2009, she took on a very special role that created a real benchmark in film and refreshed the horror genre in a way that no one had ever seen before and that few at the time were even ready for. The script from the amazing Diablo Cody, fresh off her Oscar win for Juno. The director, the visionary Karin Kusama, who would deliver the award-winning girl fight in Aeon Flux. That film was Jennifer's Body, a movie about a high school student who gets possessed by a demon during a satanic ritual gone wrong. Under the surface, it's about a whole lot more than that. Celebrating its 10-year anniversary this month, we are honored to welcome the star of Jennifer's body, Jennifer Check herself, Megan Fox. Wow. That was quite the introduction. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. So, Megan, are you a fan of the horror genre yourself? No, not really. I'm actually very, very sensitive to paranormal things and activity and spirits and ghosts or whatever you want to call it. I'm, I'm sensitive to spiritual activity, and so I can't watch anything, whether it's something, a TV show like Ghost Hunters, which my husband used to love, and it's been outlawed in our home because I end up having really crazy, horrific nightmares and experiences after watching it. I can't open myself up to that. So I don't watch anything that's really violent. I can't handle the horror genre or anything paranormal in general. This movie, though, and even back at the time when I took this movie, I was still as sensitive, but I didn't realize it. However, I didn't feel like this movie was a straight up. It's not really a horror movie. I mean, I guess it is, but it's also to me, it always read more as a comedy and with some horror elements, which is why I was more drawn to it. I've never done. Sometimes I forget all the stuff I've done to, to the best of my knowledge. And as, as my memory serves me, I don't believe I've ever done anything that falls into the straight up horror genre. But that's a long answer to your question. The simple answer is no, I'm not a big horror genre fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Did did you was there some sort of incident that you had or something that was happening when you were younger that gave you like that paranormal kind of that sense of reality of that? Do you mean like was I struck by lightning and then started seeing, <laughs> seeing spirits? No, but I I've just always had it. You know, honestly, it could have something to do with I think we're all prone to it. I was raised in the South in a Pentecostal church where they would, you know, do exorcisms on people that walked into the church that they thought were possessed by demons and the women and children would have to leave because we were considered in the Pentecostal Christian religion, women and children are considered weaker and more susceptible to being possessed. So we would have to leave the church while the men would stay behind and perform the exorcisms. But regardless, you know, my own father was part of that. He would perform some of the exorcisms. And just in general, the whole church, that's the church, uh, if you're not familiar where some of them handle snakes, our church didn't handle snakes, but we also, you know, speak in tongues and get the Holy Ghost. And it's one of those types of churches. So that I definitely saw a lot of things when I was young. 
young, very, very young at church. And then as I grew, I just had all sorts of different paranormal experiences. I never had like a a near death experience, which a lot of people have, especially like, you know, most shamans usually have some sort of near death experience that allows them to sort of transcend and see the parallel universe. And I've never had anything like that. But I just I'm highly sensitive to spirits that linger around. So anytime I travel and I travel a lot, and especially anytime I travel to England, which is particularly haunted for some reason, I know instantly when I go into a hotel room, if there's a spirit or multiple spirits there. So I'm a pain in the ass when we travel because I'll go into a room and they'll try to give me the best room that they have and it won't be okay. And we'll have to go through all the available rooms in the hotel before I find one that's the least haunted or hopefully not haunted at all. Yes. I mean, I think your original question was, did I have an original experience that sparked it? No, I think I was born this way, but I think I was also raised in an environment that was ripe for this to develop even further. Is there one specific place that you've gone that has been the most haunted? So many. I mean, I could give you one of the most recent ones was when I was actually doing this show that I was doing about for Travel Channel about archaeological controversies. When we were out visiting Stonehenge, I stayed at this estate that used to be a a mansion and they've turned it into a a hotel. It's a five-star hotel now. And they put me in their nicest room, which was sort of off at the outskirts of the hotel. And as soon as I walked in, I was there with my sister and my nephews. They were traveling with me. And as soon as I walked in, I was like, yeah, no, I can't. I can't stay in this room. There's there's definitely something here. And my sister was like, I'll take it. And I was like, okay, great. So you take this room. And I said to them, literally give me the smallest room you have where I can see every corner, where I can see everything from the bed. I don't want any hidden spaces. Give me a tiny room, tiny bathroom. That's what I want. Find it for me. They found it for me. It felt better, but there was still just something about that place that I knew was off. And usually if there's a lot of spiritual activity there or spirits are trapped, you can tell because no matter how new something is or if it's been refurbished, it always looks at least partially dilapidated. It's decaying somehow. If you pay attention to the details, like the corners of the floorboards and things like that, something's always off about it, even if it's just recently been redone. So I knew something was off and I was telling everyone on the crew, I was like, look, I got a switch. They're like, well, we're staying in a Holiday Inn. I was like, great, put me there. I don't I don't want to be here. I have to move. I ended up moving and going to another town in Bath, which was a different place and had a better experience there. But after I left, one of the producers who's very analytical, like all prefrontal cortex, no limbic brain activity, he only believes in what can be seen and proven. He took my room and he had an insane experience there where he was trying to take a nap and something was holding him down on the bed and he couldn't break free until he screamed out. He finally was able to scream. You know, it's that that feeling of where you're paralyzed and he screamed out enough and it let go of him and he sat up and then it pounded on the bed on either side of him. And so he went to the other producers and told them and then they all agreed not to tell me because they didn't want me to know that I was right because they had all kind of been making fun of me for having to move because I thought the hotel was haunted. Needless to say, they do their research and they find out that that hotel is built on one of the largest burial mounds in all of England. So there are not only like, you know, not even dozens of bodies buried, but there are hundreds and hundreds of bodies buried on that property. So it was very, very haunted. I didn't see or hear anything. It was more like, it's like it drains my vitality. It drains my life force and I start feeling really sick and I start feeling depressed. And that's when I know those feelings are not my own and that something is trying 
trying to sort of use me as a conduit or talk through me or or take my energy for itself. And so that's when I know I have to get out. Uh, Megan, I'm curious, have you ever felt the presence of good spirits or something peaceful? Yeah, definitely. We we rented a house pretty recently in Malibu, actually, where the, the family that lived there, the father had passed away. He was only in his 50s. He had passed away from colon cancer. And he was still very active in that house. And he would do things like he was there and he wanted to communicate with my mom a lot for some reason when she would visit. But he would also do things like I have a Rottweiler. And when the Roddy was sick at night, he would turn not the Roddy, the ghost, <laughs> the spirit, <laughs> right. the, the spirit would turn on the fire alarm only in the master bedroom and only for a few seconds just to wake Brian and I up so that we would go check the house. And then we would see that the Roddy was about to get sick and we could take him outside and help him and little things like that. He did it all the time or he woke me up one time I was sleeping and there was just something in my ear saying, go check the stove, go check the stove. And we left one of the pilot lights on on the stove. So he did things like that to, to protect us and watch over us. Talk a little bit about coming up with the idea of going out and doing that show, Legends of the Lost, which is fantastic. Were you a big fan of like ancient aliens and all that stuff yeah. before yes. going into that? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So ancient aliens is maybe my favorite. I don't watch a lot of TV, but it's my favorite show of all time. And it definitely is what sparked the whole idea for me because I, I started watching it years ago and it was the first time where I really started questioning everything I had been taught. And around the same time, I had actually filmed in Egypt and the head of antiquities had taken Shia and myself up to the top of the Great Pyramid. And he had disclosed some information to me, which I probably shouldn't repeat. But essentially, he told me, hey, what we claim to know is not what we know. And we actually think that maybe this is something else. And so that all was sort of happening at the same time. And I was like, you know, my God, we've been lied to about this stuff for so long. And what is all of this? And so I I do love archaeology. I do love anthropology. Those are things that are very interesting to me. If I was alive in the 30s, I think I would have been an anthropologist and gone and lived with some tribe in South America somewhere and, and learned about their culture and drank ayahuasca and had to do the whole journey and do all of that. I would have loved to do that. However, I think what I love is the idea of using something like archaeology to answer the question of humanity's origins, because that's a question that I want to somehow solve or know the answer to in this lifetime, which seems like I'm setting a very high bar. But I actually think that we're nearing that time in human evolution where we're ready for a different level of consciousness and we're ready to know some of that information that's been lost over the centuries. And so initially the show started and I had pitched it and actually sold it to a streaming service and it was in pre-production and ended up getting killed because they got a new head of non-scripted that came in. But initially I went in and I basically was like, I think I know where the Ark of the Covenant is. I think it was real. I think I know who has it. And I think that if any human being stands the chance of being granted permission to see it, it's me. And for whatever reason, like I'm Neo in the Matrix. It's me. I've been chosen. I know it. I know I can do it. And essentially we sold a show like that. And that show ended up getting killed, of course. And then people probably don't know how it works behind the scenes. You have network executives that come and go really often in these networks and they all want something different. It's like now everything's trending towards supernatural or now everything's trending towards, you know, we only want something science based. And eventually the show ended up being where we settled and we were like, okay, look, 
let's just do a show where we go to places that are hot topics in archaeology right now because there are things that we thought were settled or we thought we knew enough about it, but now they're actually starting to discover more about it and questioning what we always thought we knew. That seemed like a happy medium because most people were obviously afraid to hand over 500 grand an episode for me to go to Africa and try to hunt down the Ark of the Covenant, which is understandable. Um, But that was the initial dream. And I haven't given up on that dream. I do think that I do think that there's something there that I'm meant to do with that in particular. And for people that don't know, I'll, I'll let you know, there's this group of monks in Aksum, Ethiopia, who claim to have had the Ark of the Covenant for many, many years. It's supposedly been in Africa forever. And they house it in a church there. And the way it works is they don't volunteer to guard it. They're chosen because no one actually wants to guard it. Because when you guard it, these guys are getting really sick. If you visit there, they won't let you all the way in, but they'll come to the gates. And if you're a Westerner, they'll beg you for medicine because they're getting cataracts and some of them have died from radiation exposure. They're begging for medicine and they'll tell you it's because of the Ark. So who knows what is actually in there, but it does seem that they have something. You know, they've never let a Western person in, but I just think, I just think that they'll look into my eyes and they'll see, they'll see that I have, I'm the soul. I'm the one, I'm the chosen one that's meant to see it to bring it into light for whatever reason, because there is something, there's some kind of technology that they have there. Why would these people be exposed to radiation in the middle of Ethiopia? That makes no sense. So that's an interesting story, regardless of whether or not I end up uncovering the Ark of the Covenant. I just think that's a story that should be told because most people don't know it. And something fascinating is going on there. By the way, did you ever travel to Chichen Itza in the Yucatan, Mexico, or Tikal in Guatemala to see those pyramids? No, I've never been there. I want to be there. That's absolutely on my list. We only did four episodes of the show. And if we were going to do more. Those were places that I also wanted to go, but I want to be able to go explore those places from not, I don't want to say a mindset of ancient aliens, but I don't want it to be locked into traditional archaeology because that's selling everyone. It's not encompassing what's actually going on there if I have to only participate as like a really left-brained individual. So I do want to go there, but I want to explore it my way. So we're working on that now, trying to figure out how I can do that. I'm so fascinated with those pyramids to see if there's any connection to all three of those, but especially also that face on Mars, which seems looks to be like a pyramid. I'm also fascinated that there's connect, some connection between that and Earth. Yeah, that's a hard one because much like we can all look at the clouds and see different shapes and formations when we look at clouds, that's the argument that, yes, it was a picture, but because of light and shadows and, and the low quality of the photo, is that really a face on Mars? Is that really a pyramid? It could be. I'm the first one to say, yes, it is, but I can't really jump on it yet. There's just not enough evidence there. I will, however, tell you that the people I've spoken to who have worked at NASA in the past, or even some of these archaeologists I spoke to that were really higher up in their divisions off camera and off the record, they're really happy to talk about the fact that they definitely believe in extraterrestrial life. Some of them claim to have even interacted with them. So I believe it, but right now there's just not enough to really, there's nothing to analyze right now, you know? Going back to Jennifer's Bible, this is incredible though, by the way, my <laughs> <Yeah>. God. <laughs> we can do, I want to do two hours on this. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> my God. Well, Hugh, actually, before we move on, what was probably the most fascinating revelation for you during the mysteries that you delved into on Legends of the Lost. Is there something in particular that you discovered that just was like, oh my God, this is amazing? I think for me on that trip, 
See, I think there's so much more to Stonehenge and that landscape. And I did interact with the Saracen Stones and go to the Purcelli Mountain where the the rocks were were taken. I did feel energetically a major shift interacting with them. And so for me, it's not like there was this huge revelation, except that I got to feel feel what I've been researching for so long. You know, I got to actually feel it and go, okay, there is definitely something, there's something tangible here. And in that episode, we went to a, I believe he's a neurologist, I guess that's the category he would, he would fall into. And we were like, Hey, so we, we banged on these rocks and we made some musical sounds and we want you to play it on a loop and see if it changes my brain activity. And he was like, uh, okay. And he played some other frequencies as well, like at 110 Hertz which people have learned puts you into increases the theta waves in your brain. So we did that experiment and he was actually really surprised at what came back because nobody's ever done that before. And it did change my brain more than any of the other frequencies. It did create more alpha waves. It created more theta waves. It essentially put me in a trance. And so there's just something there. And I always knew there was something there, but it was the ability to be able to actually go experience it myself and then and to prove it to someone who was definitely a skeptic. That's always fun when someone is like, you are a fucking eccentric lunatic. None of this is real. This is nonsense. (laughs) And then they have to go, okay, I don't know how or why, but something is going on here. I can't explain it, but it needs more research. That's, that's super fun to be able to do that. Wow. I love this. That's That's great. That's great. All right. Well, back to Jennifer's body. Talk about getting Diablo's original script and how you came to work on that project. This was a while ago now. So my my (laughs) memory's not super clear. I've had three kids since then. I totally get that. I have four. So I I hear you. (laughs) It's, you know, your brain just, your brain really changes and you don't retain all those memories that your brain is like, eh, we don't need these anymore because we have all this other stuff going on. So some of this is love. I just remember getting a call and my agent saying, you know, there's an opportunity to be in this Diablo Cody movie. She wrote Juno. I think I went to the premiere of Juno to see the movie. (sighs) I think I was wearing a Motley Crue t-shirt. I don't remember what that was, but I remember what I was wearing. I met with Karin and I remember reading it. And, you know, at the time I was, I, I think I was 22 at the time when we were filming. Some of the more broad sort of not even subliminal messaging but some of the messaging was lost on me even at that age it resonated with me on a really deep level and in particular the scene where jennifer is being sacrificed by the boy band yeah (laughs) that was an intense scene it was yeah and when i got to set and actually film that scene so much more came out of me than i even anticipated and i think it took karen aback a little bit because i think it was more than she was ready for and at that time in my life the sort of allegory for me or the experience why it was resonating was that boy band for me was kind of the movie studios at the time. I felt like that's what they were willing to do to me to get the movie that they needed to get to make the money that they were going to make. They didn't care that I needed to be sacrificed in the process. They didn't care about my mental, physical, spiritual well-being. That wasn't even a thought. It was a joke. And so they were willing to gut me if they had to in order to get the end product that they needed. And that was a very powerful experience for me. And so I think maybe not in the front of my mind, because I was too young at the time, I wasn't really as introspective and I wasn't analyzing things the way I am now. But I think it just resonated because it, it felt like a parallel in a way of the life I was living at that moment. 
And so I was drawn to it for that reason. I mean, I think it was something beyond logic and reason, honestly. Again, going back to that scene, what you're talking about, it makes perfect sense because you have the vulnerability that your character displays in that scene in particular. It all comes out and it's such a polarity between the band making a complete joke out of it and then that horrible victimization of the character, which causes a huge transformation where the revenge of Jennifer is set free. It must have been a really cathartic experience for you as well, I would imagine. It was cathartic. There was also something really freeing about playing a character like that where you get to fully embrace your shadow, where, you know, all of these aspects of ourselves that we push away because we're ashamed or we feel guilty of them or we feel like we shouldn't have these thoughts or we shouldn't have these feelings if we're good people. All of that being raised so religious and in the South and the negativity and the guilt that you carry just being A, having a female body in the first place, B, the the ambivalence to put it in a pleasant way that you feel around sexuality, having been raised super religious, the guilt and the shame you carry around that as well, to be able to embody the antithesis of everything that I was raised to be was really freeing. And I really, I really leaned into that pretty hard. And I had a really good time doing it because it was just everything, all that repression from my childhood. I was able to just tear it away and really like, like I was a werewolf, like ripping off my skin. So yes, cathartic is the perfect word. It was a very cathartic experience for for many reasons on multiple levels. And it spanned, it was releasing me through things from my childhood to things that I was experiencing at that moment. One of the things Jennifer's body managed to pull off is really capture the female high school experience. The emotional insanity of adolescence, complex friendships, and all-around real teenage experience that has never been seen in a film, much less a horror film. Can you talk a little bit about the film being a reflection of that? Yeah, I mean, Diablo is brilliant, and that's what she's she's so good at doing. But I think, I mean, I don't know. I feel like going back to some of those 80s movies, there were some pretty good movies that represented the high school school experience at that. I mean, Heather's. Yes. That was pretty good. Yeah, that that's a, true. Oh, I mean, this wasn't literal either. I was eating boys. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. but it, but it was a good, it was a pretty brave exploration of that, I would say. And it did, there's so much more to be told about the relationship between teenage girls in middle school and high school and the relationship that they have with each other and to themselves and to their parents. It's so complicated and it is so vampiric and many ways because we're raised or we've been raised to be competitive, right? So the only way that you're worth anything is if you're the best one. But the only way you can be the best one is if you destroy the rest of them. And that's sort of this subliminal loop that plays in the back of your mind when you're a teenager. It's like fight or flight. It's survival. And girls are always trying to hurt each other, even the ones that love each other. It's crazy. It's true. The jealousy and how sinister it can get is intense to say the very least. So I think there's more stories to be told about that. But I think this did an amazing job of, of trying to tell that story. And especially at a time when those stories weren't really being told. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 
old. I love that first scene after you disappear in the van and you show up in the middle of the night at Needy's house. Yes. It's terrifying as well as a masterful performance from you because you maintain that mystery that isn't revealed to the audience until later in the film of what actually happened. Talk about being able to accomplish that. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, it's not like I'm a method actor and I can explain to you all the, the highbrow acting techniques that I did to pull this off. But I think it was more just that I was resonating with a because I'm so sensitive and I'm so permeable that energies can enter me so easily. I think that at certain times, if not for the entirety of filming that movie on and off camera, I was resonating to an energy that I identify and think is the character Lilith from they say it's from folklore. And I don't know if you're not familiar that Lilith was in Jewish mysticism she was Adam's first wife and she was created from the dust so she was actually Adam's equal and when she refused to submit to Adam sexually or in any other way Adam got furious and he went to God and he whined about it and he was like this is you know in the animal kingdom all the females submit and Lilith isn't doing this and this isn't fair this isn't what I want and God was like all right Adam so I'm gonna make you another one so he takes this time from Adam's rib and he makes Eve and she's the subservient you know 1950s housewife that patriarchy has asked us all to be. And Lilith is then banished to the desert and she becomes basically a demon banshee where as folklore has it, she preys on these pious, very holy, wonderful men. She seduces them and she devours them. And she also devours their newborn babies. So that is the legend of Lilith. And I think that I was really just letting that archetype penetrate me and letting it come out. And so there was no rhyme or reason. I was not organized in my thoughts. I did not have a particular discipline. It was just letting that in, feeling it and then releasing it. In a lot of ways, it was really I wasn't acting. It was genuine. I was feeling a lot of that stuff. It was real. That's really all I can say about that scene. I showed up. I allowed myself to be vulnerable and I allowed those energies to come through. And you vomited a lot of crazy black tar everywhere. I did. <laughs> Yeah, so I, you know what's funny is I don't even I've done so much stunt work and special effects work that I don't specifically remember that I think think what they did, this is the memory that I have, I hope it's correct, is they had some fake blood on my mouth and in my mouth to leak out. But the actual vomiting was, it's like an old school trick. It's a tube that they taped to the side of my mouth that's off camera because I was in a, it was a profile shot. That's kind of so what they then, did in the movie The Exorcist. Yeah, exa exactly. Yeah. It was the exact same thing. Unless I'm making this up, but I do think this is a real memory. I'm sure you can verify. I'm sure Diablo, somebody must know. I wasn't actually, obviously, projectile vomiting any of that. But, <laughs> but poor Amanda had to sit there and, you know, she had to get covered in it. Yeah. <laughs> it much more difficult for her. It was more fun for me. This movie had so many amazing props and we love props. Did you keep anything from the movie? You know, they're really dodgy about studios don't like when you take anything. So if you take something, you, you really you kind of have to steal it. And for whatever reason, I didn't steal anything off that movie. I should have. But I don't know what. What would I have taken other than her wardrobe? What am I going to take? I could have taken the box cutter, the BFF yeah, necklace. That, yes. That yes. Didn't, yeah. Those things just didn't even it's a, it didn't even occur to me. And it's a shame because I would love to have them now. But I just didn't even think about didn't think about taking them. I wish I had. That's funny. Yeah, We managed to. Yeah, we're huge fans of the films. We actually tracked down one of your demon prom dresses from the pool oh. fight scene. And yeah. uh, it's uh, yeah, it's very water damaged, but it still survived. And uh, yeah, a couple of other items. There's like a cheerleader's outfit from Devil's Kettle and a letterman's jacket. 
I think when you're like, look, when you're the actor and you're making the movie, it doesn't matter. Even when you're making a, a movie where the budget is $200 million, it never <laughs> feels like you're right. making something that's going to live forever. And so for me, it didn't enter my mind like, hey, I should take something because this is going to be a memory that I want to hang on to or this is going to be iconic at some point in time. You just don't really think that way about yourself or about or at least I don't about what what we're doing. It's like, oh, we're making another movie. Yeah, you um, lived it. So maybe I'm going to start doing that. I mean, I don't even have any of I don't have any Michaela stuff either from Transformers. So, oh, wow. Oh. Talk about the film now being rediscovered all of a sudden. There's been a lot of articles that have popped up and yeah. people going back and just saying, hey, everybody missed this movie or didn't get the attention that it deserves. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was it was mismarketed at the time. And I hate to blame anyone for something not working. But I think it was not a, I don't think anyone knew it was a comedy. I think it was marketed as some sort of like sexy horror movie, which it was never intended to be. And the marketing was all focused on this sort of pinup image that had been projected onto me from the Transformers films and instead of focusing on the substance of the actual movie and the performances. And so I think, unfortunately, people were like, I don't, what is this movie? Why would I go see it? And even at the time, I don't even know that when people watched it, they understood what they were watching. I just do think it was so ahead of its time. And now, obviously, the consciousness has changed. People understand more and think more deeply on these topics. And it falls right in line with everything that's gone on with the equal movement and Me Too and and all this stuff that's happening where we're having these conversations about how we think of women, how we treat women, how women are treating each other because of how we're conditioned. These are all conversations that just weren't being had, at least as I was aware in 2009, definitely not in films. So I think it was a combination of things why it was missed, but over time, it has grown this cult following. And every year for Halloween, I see more and more people dressed as Jennifer when I go out, which is fun. And my kids will see it now too. My oldest son is turning seven. So he's starting to take notice of that stuff also. And, you know, that stuff is fun. It's, it's fun to have been a part of something that was so special. And I remember when I watched the movie, I was like, fuck, this is, this is a great movie. So I was surprised that... One part of me was surprised that it was reviewed the way that it was just because Diablo was attached to it. And I thought they would review it better if for no other reason based on that. I expected to get crucified for it like always, but I watched it and I knew back then that it was something special. And so I'm happy that that people are coming back to it and revisiting it and that it's growing the following that it has. It's, you know, it's like retroactively very a successful movie, actually. You've got that screening coming up at Beyond Fest here in L.A., at the end of September, September 30th. So you'll be joined by Karin and you'll be doing a Q&A after. Yeah, and I'm actually doing, Diablo and I are interviewing each other for Entertainment Tonight. That's oh, amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, so that should be a pretty good conversation. We'll see how it goes. What I seriously hope as a fanboy of this, I hope it somehow brings the character and the story back in some way, whether it be a sequel, a TV series, something. Now that the attention, some more attention will be put back on this thing. Well, they brought it to stage. There was an, actually a, Jennifer's Body play in LA and I was working at the time I wanted to go to the premiere but I couldn't go so I don't know how that did but um, I'm sure that was maybe amazing so we'll see I mean it could definitely turn into some kind of a, a streaming show who knows now and anything can come back I mean Brian just finished 90210 that's airing every Wednesday and that was like 20 years later that show came back so anything is possible well you know we had uh, Diablo Cody on the show here and uh, so when you see her in a few days tell her we want a sequel <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have one 
last question. Yeah. I, I'm really, I'm curious, what was your favorite scene of the movie to shoot? So favorite as in the most fun, I would say probably the pool scene, the prom scene. Because I actually really love, it's an interesting situation for me. I'm a germaphobe. And so I have some OCD. And obviously that those are control issues. It's all about controlling your environment. And, all. and being when I get forced to do something where I have zero control, it's like exposure therapy. And it ends up being really fun for me. So being thrown in that disgusting pool, in that water, having to sit in a taffeta prom dress for, I think we filmed that for two or three days. It feels like maybe it was only one day. It felt like multiple <laughs> days. <laughs> but um, having to do that, it freed me of, of that for a minute. And so that became really fun. And that's always the case whenever I have to get really dirty or messy or bloody or whatever. I end up really enjoying those scenes. So that was one of the most fun fun. It's also really fun to scream like from the the deepest part of your core and getting able to do that is always fun and freeing also. I think I also really liked, I ended up really liking the scene where I kill, I always forget his character's name, the kid I kill in the house where I get him to meet me there. Oh, oh the kid with the lip ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the emo kid. I ended up really liking filming that scene because, and this seems like this should be why I didn't like it, but I after I kill him, you know, Jennifer sits down and she's like drinking the blood out of his cadaver. Right. And they had to make a full fake body of him with flesh and all of that. And they cut it open and then they fill the stomach with fake blood, which is pure corn syrup, which is just, it's disgusting. Yeah, I right. would never, I'm so holistic and like everything yeah. is organic. I won't <laughs> right. touch something that's been sprayed with pesticides now. But back then I didn't know and I was drinking straight corn syrup. There's something about having to like scoop blood out of the carcass of something and then drink it. Even if you know it's fake, it still is like a disturbing, unnerving, thing to have to do and we did like eight takes so by the end of that it's kind of like it's the same thing it's like when you just have no control over something and something terrible is happening and you just start laughing because it's like what else am I supposed to do it ended up being really fun because it was so awful <laughs> <laughs> alright well we're uh, running out of time here so we don't want to keep it too much longer but uh, Megan thank you so much yes. for joining us you've been amazing yeah, thank you yes. thank seriously you. my thank god you. Wow. my god you have the best stories yeah ever. seriously unbelievable <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for your Thank time today, you. Megan. Thank you, you guys. You're awesome. It's the Boo Crew's 10th anniversary celebration of Jennifer's body. That was us in conversation with Megan Fox. Here's a Boo Crew fright fact. The Devil's Kennel Falls is actually a real thing, and it's located in Judge Magny State Park in Minnesota, and the water actually disappears into this really cool glacial pothole. The title of the movie comes from the band Hole's song of the same name. To create the infamous black vomit in the kitchen scene, Hershey's chocolate syrup and CGI were mixed together. This is Diablo Cody. You are getting spooky with the Boo Crew. I am going to eat your soul and shit I want to spend some time on this next topic because it's got to be in a lot of our top five horror films of all time. And literally not to kiss your ass or anything, but Jennifer's body oh, was yes. fucking fantastic. Oh Thank gosh. you very much. I, I'm, it means a lot to me to hear that because the movie, you know, flopped and kind of got shit on at the time. So it's a relief. When Which is correct. <laughs> like, I think there's two schools. I'm convinced there's a school of people who think it's a masterpiece. And then there's a school of people who just didn't get it at all. Yep. Yeah. I, yeah. Which is, by the way, 
Fair. It's not for everybody. And certainly at the time that Karin Kusama, who's a genius, at the Mm -hmm. time that we were making the movie, we knew it wasn't going to be like a massive blockbuster success. Like we knew it was a specific kind of film that was going to have a specific kind of audience. But I think, you know, Fox was hoping the movie would make some money. (laughs) So (laughs) they were a little pissed off about that. But Well, tell us a little bit about writing this story and coming up with the idea for it. After I had written Juno and the movie was sort of, uh, I think at the time, I'm trying to remember what the timeline was. The point is, I had been told that, like, basically, you can do whatever you want for your next project because that's, you know, the carte blanche that they give you when you write a hit movie. So I was like, obviously, I'm going to write a horror movie. No question about it. This is probably what I've always wanted to do. And um, it was just a dream. And I knew that I wanted it to, like, play into the idea of adolescence and, like, female hunger, female friendship. Always been kind of in the cannibals. Uh, and so I thought like I was like this is definitely what I'm going to do I'm going to do a girl that eats boys and and needs boys and needs male attention to feed because it seemed like an interesting metaphor and honestly is even more interesting to me now that people are like on social media just thirsty all day long I started writing it uh, independently I wrote it on spec you know I didn't take it out and pitch it anywhere I didn't go and sell the idea to a studio I just sat and wrote it myself and then I went out with the script and um, Karin um, was we had talked to a bunch of directors and I remember meeting her and I remember she and I were specifically talking about the movie Carrie which we both love so much and we were really getting down to the nitty gritty like I love that score from that movie I even just love the way the blood specifically looks in that movie I love everything about it and so we were like we were both so into Carrie and so clearly Carrie geeks that I was like we're gonna get along and sure enough we did and still do the movie was kind of fast-tracked because Jason Reitman who was a producer had directed Juno and he and I were both coming off of that movie and so it was playtime we just got to go to Canada and like make a horror movie with very little interference until the first cut was turned in and then suddenly they were panicking they specifically <laughs> said i got on the phone with this dude i want to say his name i hate him oh, so he's, still in, <laughs> he's <laughs> still in charge he, he he said uh this is a movie for teenage boys who think megan fox is hot that's who it's for you guys didn't pander to that audience you know that's and, and we said well we kind of did like you know like she's in it you know what i mean like it wasn't like you know but that wasn't what they had in mind and they said you know we want you to go back and do some reshoots that will appeal to that audience so that's why there's like a random shower scene (laughs) with like a random naked girl because megan fox wasn't going to do that no no offense to the girl she's not random she's a human being it was her her inclusion in the film was random i was already realizing i was like oh man this movie's gonna tank because they're gonna market it all wrong they don't understand who it's for there was also like am i babbling no, oh, no, no. There was also okay. There was also this like building backlash against Megan Fox at the time because she had just done the Transformers movie and she had done some like really amazing like super candid scathing interviews about Michael Bay. I remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's and right. everyone's attitude instead of being like, "Isn't it amazing that someone's talking honestly about a work experience instead of spouting the usual bullshit about it, it was the greatest experience ever? I learned right. so much." Like she was just like, "Michael Bay's crazy." I felt totally objectified, and the movies are stupid. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> like people got so mad and were like, how dare this bitch, like this entitled brat have an opinion about an experience that she had. It was just like everything 
just went haywire and it was bad timing and the movie just did not open. Am I mistaken or was there some kind of controversy with Jennifer's body? There was a scene either was it girl on girl sex or makeup <laughs> or something or I don't know if there's a controversy. I, uh, I it, was, it was in the media. I remember that much. Well, yeah. I mean, Megan Fox makes out with Amanda Seyfried in the movie, which is like amazing. Like, I want to see that. I don't know. Like, that's why I wrote it. But I, that's the nice thing it. about being female is like you can just write very exploitive stuff that you want to see and everyone's like, oh, how artistic. Um, but, so I take it you went to set that day. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, it was. Uh, yeah, I think I'll tell you this much. Like. Needy is madly in love with Jennifer in that movie. Like, there's no right. question about it. It's not subtext. Like, she's gay. And, you know, I think maybe people didn't fully understand that, even though they made out. Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. What I loved about that movie, too, is that, I mean, it's a very s- sexual movie. Mm-hmm. But it's like kind of got an awkward but realistic sexuality to it instead of like a stereotypical glossed over sexuality, which maybe is what the studios were hoping for. I don't know. Maybe. Like yeah. the love scene between Needy and her boyfriend <laughs> yeah. it was like, it's awkward, but it was real, right? It I felt love, real. That's one of my favorite things. I'm so sorry. Now I'm kissing my own ass. It makes, <laughs> it makes me laugh so hard. Johnny Simmons in that scene where he's having sex with Amanda Seyfried and she starts screaming because she's like in this horrible situation and he's like, What's wrong? Am I hurting you? Is it too big? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it kills me. Like the, uh, good scary scenes too, like when Jennifer shows up at the house and yes. she goes in the refrigerator. Yeah. And that's yeah. uh, her voice her behavior. It's like that was scary thank you I think you know horror movie stuff the scares are harder to accomplish I think than anything I have such tremendous respect for people that can write a good scare because it's a lot harder than comedy in my experience it's the hardest thing in the world I think the way that scene was written too in context we see that scene before we know what happened to her in the van with the guys right right? the tour you know yeah 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 but like comedy and horror they both have responses we respond to them. We either scream or we laugh. Or the uncontrollable. They're similar, right? That's it's like, that's why those are my two favorite things to write. Getting a reaction out of an audience. It's like, I guess it's a cheap trick, but it's the best thing ever. You know, guys, it's like bringing it back to the topic. I have gone out trying to pitch a Jennifer's Body TV show. And my argument is that the Buffy movie didn't make money and then was an extremely yeah. successful mm-hmm. show. Yeah. No one will hear it. Wow. Really? Yeah. Why do you think? Is it just the climate or like, you know? No, I, I think like- they're like the movie flopped. So why would we want to make a television show of it? Which well, is why I have my Buffy example in my pocket. Yeah. But nobody- yeah. Honestly, I have been reading more articles about Jennifer's body in the past two years than articles that had come out around the film's release. And people are kind of saying this movie is more relevant now than it even was when it came out. It was way ahead of its time. Uh- Jennifer check. <laughs> is a hero for the Me Too movement. <laughs> you know, and honestly, that's yeah. been said. Like, th- yeah. there was an article that just came out because I think it just started streaming on HBO or something. Some, so it's been yep. it's yeah. been reintroduced into the conversation. I would think, like... I gotta check this out. That's what I was thinking. Like, <laughs> the climate kind of calls. I feel like almost Jennifer's body wasn't at the right time almost a little bit. Or maybe it was at the right time and that's why we are now or I feel like it's really at the right time. I feel like they're also like it was it came out at a weird time where in, just from a practical standpoint like there was like a moment there where like now we have this like totally new world of like streaming services and like different buyers for stuff. And at the time it was like we were still in kind of that old model of theatrical release and then 
it goes to DVD. Right. And I feel like a movie like that might have had an easier time finding an audience now, you know, if it was like a Netflix movie or something. I don't know. We can only dream and hope. That. <laughs> I really, really appreciate all the nice things you guys have said about it. Oh. It's like, that's really, really... Hey, we're fans. Warms my heart. Thank you. Hi, I'm actress Megan Fox. Every year, thousands of kids enter our high school succumbing to terrible peer pressure. Let's face it, high school can be tough and kids can be cruel, picking on others for just being different. Well, I say fuck them, because they don't know shit. What really matters is being yourself, and if that includes slowly killing than eating every boy at your school, well then I say do it, because nothing is more important than just being who you are. It's the Boo Crew 10th anniversary celebration of Jennifer's Body. That was us in conversation with Academy Award winning writer Diablo Cody. Here's a Boo Crew fright fact. In the summer of 2009, Boom Studios released a Jennifer's Body graphic novel that served as a prequel to the film. In March 2018, Jennifer's Body, the unauthorized musical from hell, debuted in Los Angeles at the El Cid Theater in Silver Lake, starring a cast including Shelley Regner from the Pitch Perfect films and Lindsay Pierce from Glee. And finally, the filmmakers considered actual rock stars like Pete Wentz and Joel Madden for the role of singer Nikolai from Low Shoulder. The role eventually went to Adam Brody. Speaking of Adam Brody... Adam, the 10th anniversary of Jennifer's Body is coming up in a few weeks. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah, your role as Nikolai, what a performance. And there's Thanks. that one scene that you uh, had with Megan Fox in the Devil's Kettle Falls area that was particularly powerful. It's very fitting that we're sacrificing another woman. Right, there you go, right? Yeah. <laughs> 10 years later. <laughs> Seriously, again, adding humor to that scene was a feat because that is a brutal scene but you managed to ride that line and still bring out the absurdity in that and a degree of social commentary as well what are your feelings looking back on that film and do you see it as a power piece that it is now yeah i mean i you know it's funny fox searchlight is putting out this movie right now and they're doing an amazing job the now defunct short-lived fox atomic was putting out that one and i not to throw him under the bus too much because i don't know if any amount of marketing in that year would have done it justice or changed the perception at that time but i really think they just 180 degrees did everything wrong in that regard and right. i mean it's a movie written by diablo cody who just won an oscar directed by karen kusama a woman like a visionary female director it's starring two women and they ran from that as much as possible they didn't put diablo cody, she just won a fucking oscar her last screenplay they didn't use her to advertise at all they were like down in the letterboxes, there are those people. But this is Megan Fox. This is about boobs. This is for dudes. <laughs> and it's it's really not. No. You know? And and so I think they just went to the wrong audience. And um, and in an uncreative way, too. I mean, it wasn't even like, oh, it's a good poster, even though it's not what the movie is. It's also just like bad poster and so on and so forth. And so, because I really liked the movie at the time. I remember I saw it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. And I was so surprised at the market. I also thought it'd be a marketing person's dream. And not to harp on the marketing so much, but I love it. I love probably i like trailers more than movies and i like posters more than trailers like i really you know i fucking maybe i get no more joy than walking in the movie theater and seeing the posters and then trailers i love it and so i'm so pleased with this movie and oh, the great the, the great job amazing. yeah the, the the great job they've done so anyways to me that movie was also like a marketing person's wet dream and like so many great images oh you yeah. know what i mean when you think of the images and it's like you didn't use that you just made up an image anyways so the movie's i don't know the movie's great and it's definitely uh, a feminist movie from a feminist point of view and um totally misrepresented at the time and uh, i'm just happy that people have uh found it embraced it and it's got its day so i'm thrilled and you know 
maybe it's even cooler to have people discover it this way and it maybe it adds to the story of it. it's kind of ultimately it worked out great but you know at the time missed opportunity for sure like diablo said and we all agree it was way ahead of its time yeah there was some misogyny at play you know i think um if i want to dig in a little more to like she's an outspoken writer and seem i think people already right after juno kind of wanted to punish a little bit i think megan fox was an outspoken actor oh god did she call michael bay hitler when she was 24 like who gives a fuck and somehow that was like how dare she i don't know jason reitman directed juno no one seemed to give him any they seemed to embrace him right away after that so i don't know i think different time even though it wasn't that long ago different time hell is a teenage girl. That was a Boo Crew Podcast episode 69 and our 10th anniversary celebration of Jennifer's body. Thank you so much for listening. Follow Megan Fox at Megan Fox on Instagram and Adam Brody at Handle Brody on Twitter. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying It smells like Thai food in here. Have you guys been fucking? Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tahada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com/podcasts.